Uh, my name's Catherine Doyle. I'm a reporter at the, White, at the Washington Examiner where I cover the White House. Um, I'm, thank you for joining us today. As for the discussion, as we mark 20 years since the start of the Iraq War, we'll be looking at how the climate of debate in media and politics in 2002 and 2003 differs and is maybe similar to the one that exists today. And we'll discuss whether there are any lessons that we have overlooked in how to foster productive debate about security policy. I'll announce speakers alphabetically. So we'll start with Professor Essen Butt, an associate professor at the Shar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's South Asia Center. His book, Secession and Security, Explaining the State Strategy Against Separatists, was published by Cornell University Press in 2017 and won the 2019 International Studies Association Award for the best book in international security studies. His work has appeared in journals such as, the, such as International Organization, Journal of Global Security Studies, Journal of Strategic Studies, Politics and Religion and Security Studies, where he published a paper we'll get into today, I hope, asking why did the United States invade Iraq in 2003? Essen has a PhD in political science from the University of Chicago. Dan Coldwell is vice president at the Center for Renewing America. Previously as senior advisor and later executive director at Concerned Veterans for America and Stand Together as vice president of foreign policy, Dan helped oversee Stand Together's campaign to end the wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Syria. He played a key role in passing the VA Accountability Act, the VA Mission Act, and other significant reforms to the Department of Veterans Affairs during the Trump administration. Dan graduated from Arizona State University and is a veteran of the Iraq War. Justin Logan is the Cato Institute's Director of Defense and Policy Studies, Foreign Policy Studies, and an expert on US ground strategy, international relations theory, and American foreign policy. His current research focuses on the shifting balance of power in Asia, specifically concerning China, and the limited relevance of the Middle East to US national security. He has authored numerous policy studies and articles published in International Security, the Journal of Strategic Studies, Strategic Studies Quarterly, Foreign Policy, War on the Rocks, and the Harvard International Review, among others. Logan holds a master's degree in international relations from the University of Chicago and a bachelor's degree in international relations from American University. Dr. Samantha Maitra is a senior editor at the American Conservative and an elected associate fellow at the Royal Historical Society in the United Kingdom. He is also a visiting fellow at the Center for Renewing America. Maitre completed his PhD in international relations at the University of Nottingham in the UK with a vice chancellor's scholarship in research excellence. His expertise is in great power politics, cultural dynamics, shaping foreign policy, realism, conservatism, and grand strategy. So with that introduction, I'll turn the podium over to Professor Butt uh, for your remarks. All right, well, thanks for having me, guys. Can everybody hear me okay? All right, well, uh, I'm here basically to talk a little bit about uh, the implications of the Iraq war, the extensions of the Iraq war, and really addressing the question of whether something like that could happen again or how soon it could happen. And um, my basic answer to the question of could it happen again is for sure, uh, absolutely it could happen again. And I'll go through maybe three or four sort of points of why that might be the case with a couple of points sort of going against that argument. But overall, my, my case is that uh, the US is definitely not chastened uh, from that experience for the most part. Um, just for a little bit of background, uh, I think the reason I've been invited to this panel is because I published a peer-reviewed article a couple of years ago 
on the causes of the Iraq war, which basically argued that uh, the reason that the U.S. invaded Iraq was for reasons of status and reputation, uh, that after 9-11, the U.S. felt a keen sense of humiliation, and to overcome that sense of humiliation, the U.S. needed to essentially beat up on a smaller state and, what, and have, the world watch, uh, have the world watch what it does to, to Iraq. And so uh, my basic argument was that the U.S. Uh, for Iraq, uh, for its demonstration effect, uh, in, in essence, to, to, to show the world uh, that it would remain the world's hegemonic state and it was not to be messed with. Uh, so this demonstration effect has been often uh, has been a cause of war, not just for American wars, but other, other wars not involving the U.S. It's a pretty standard cause of war in the IR literature. So the question is, could something like that happen, happen again? And I think absolutely it could. Um, so let me make four sort of quick points about why, why that might be the case. I think the first and the sort of overwhelming structural reason for the Iraq war is still very much with us, which is sort of a sense of American nationalism. Uh, if we cast our minds back to sort of 9-11 and the immediate aftermath of 9-11, one of, the, one of the driving forces for the Iraq war was how could this happen to us? We are a great power, we are a superpower, how could 19 hijackers with box cutters do this to us? Um, and while there have been certain changes in the American body politic over the last 20 years, uh, both on the right and the left, both amongst the po political elite as well as, as, well as, the, uh, as, well as voters, uh, I think that sort of fundamental belief in American nationalism, the belief that you know, the U.S. is the world's preeminent superpower, that it should remain the preeminent superpower, uh, that, US for, that the U.S. is a force for good in the world, I don't think that's gone anywhere. Um, to the extent that there has been a certain shift, it's not been about sort of U.S. self-conception, it's more about sort of how the U.S. thinks about the rest of the world, right? So it's not like the U.S. was nationalistic in the Iraq war and now is not so nationalistic. I think it's still pretty nationalistic, but what's changed is that the U.S., and especially voters and political elites both, look at the rest of the world with a lot more skepticism, right? That there's a sort of, it's a scary world out there and we should stay away from it. And so to the extent that there has been a change in the last 20 years, I think that's been the change. But I don't think Americans have fundamentally recast their own visions of their own, their own country and what it stands for and, uh, and all of that. Um, and I'm sort of reminded of uh, Reinhold Niebuhr's book on uh, the irony of American history, where he talks about sort of the sense of American innocence. Um, and innocence not in the sense of not being guilty, but innocence in the sense of this sort of naivete that the rest of the world is so complicated and we, we you know, poor, naive Americans just don't get it. Um, and I think we're sort of seeing some of that uh, in some of the reactions to the Iraq war. So I think that's one basic reason is that American nationalism hasn't gone anywhere. Uh, there is slightly more skepticism about the rest of the world, but uh, that fundamental cause is still very much with us. Second, I think that the real lessons of the Iraq war really haven't been learned. Uh, certainly some disastrous wars, some wars of aggression do result in countries learning the correct lessons and sort of saying never again, right? So if we think of one example, Argentina in the Falklands slash Malvinas war, you know, there was really an, a feeling of never again in the Argentinian society after that war. Uh, obviously there was a regime change and so on and so forth. But the bottom line is that there are certain types of wars where countries just ask themselves, what did we do wrong? How did, how did this come to happen? You know, we should never do it again. That hasn't really happened in this country for the most part, uh, with some exceptions of prior panels, I'm guessing. Um, uh, if you look at sort of people uh, who were responsible for that war and for that decision to go to war, uh, none of them paid any reputational or professional cost. Uh, Condi Rice ended up at Stanford with a very pushy, uh, cushy gig. Uh, Paul Wolfowitz ended up at the World Bank. 
uh, George W. Bush and Dick Cheney had their reputations entirely laundered by the, by the onset of Donald Trump. Um, so uh, really nobody had to pay any reputational, any reputational costs. Um, and I think a sort of uh, symbol of this is that is a new Leffler book on the causes of the Iraq war, uh, where his basic argument is that uh, you know, the Bush administration was not a nefarious actor, it was just sort of overzealous. Um, and I think that's the general, if I was to sort of uh, project the median voter on this question, I think that's the median voter's position, that this was a reasonable idea badly executed, not a bad idea. Um, and so I think that's another big reason why something like this could happen relatively soon and relatively easily is because no one's actually dealt with the, the implications of why, why the U.S. went into, why the U.S. went into Iraq. Um, the third point I would make is that uh, similar to 2003, uh, and in many ways worse than 2003, we live in a quote-unquote post-truth environment. Uh, I mean, we don't have to get into all the details of the last five or six years, but everything from vaccines to stolen elections and so on and so forth. Um, and so, you know, the idea of mis mistruths or lies or exaggerations or whatever you want to say, threat inflation, uh, that infrastructure is still very much with us. Um, so that's another reason why I think that something like this could, could very easily happen again. Uh, it's very easy for executives and, and legislators to talk about core interests uh, in very exaggerated ways, like everything is a core, core interest for the U.S. Uh, and finally, the, the sort of, and this is Paul Pillar's sort of been hammering this, uh, been hammering this point a lot about the lack of policy process uh, that, that uh, in the run-up to the Iraq war. I mean, famously, people like Paul Pillar have said that, you know, there was no decision. There was no process. It sort of, it was just assumed into action, I believe, was one phrase. Um, and certainly, I think that that's, that's still very much with us. I think we still see foreign policy by fiat uh, from both parties. And uh, I don't think that there has been any uh, sort of recasting of that fundamental, the idea of institutions being checks and balances in, in the American system, uh, I think exists for a lot, of, uh, a lot of domains, but probably not foreign policy and probably not security policy, uh, the way that you know, domestic economic interests, for instance, do have a lot of uh, uh, voices. It's not so much in foreign policy. So, so again, it sort of, it depends on one party, one person, one regime, one cabinet, and, so something like this, I think, could, could very easily happen again. Uh, two points that I think sort of go against what I just said, uh, maybe don't sort of overwhelm the, overwhelm the argument, but I do think sort of maybe mitigate, mitigate some of that. Um, one is, you know, uh, partisan polarization. Uh, generally, partisan polarization is thought of as, quote, unquote, bad thing in the U.S., and I think for the most part, it is a bad thing. But I think when it comes to starting dumb or idiotic or aggressive wars, uh, it's probably a good thing because uh, it's hard for any one uh, leader, any one president, any one cabinet to have the type of support, the type of bipartisan support you need in this country that was quite common in the, in the 2000s and earlier. It's quite difficult to, to generate that support today. I think if you see, look at something as basic as sort of approval ratings of, of presidents, uh, again, from either party, uh, approval ratings from the other party for the president in power, uh, those have fundamentally shifted in the last 10 or 15 years. And so those days of, you know, where presidents could at some point, at least in their presidency, enjoy 80, 90 percent approval ratings seem to be long gone. So I think one of the, one of the impediments to this, these types of wars uh, is, partisan, uh, is partisan polarization. It's hard to get that, it's hard to get the other party on board, essentially, for this type of action. Uh, the implication, I think, here, especially when you interact this with the, with the type of threat the U.S. faces, right? So, 
So if you're thinking of Russia or China, for instance, you know, big major powers, uh, you know, a demonstration effect over Ukraine right now or Taiwan tomorrow, for instance, I think it's much harder to do that in, in this world. So smaller, smaller adventures, you know, more, uh, more limited uh, military, military adventures uh, might be possible and I think can be possible. Uh, but I think uh, these sort of big wars, at least in this climate, are very difficult. Uh, the last thing I'll say is sort of, and this is the counterpoint to the media environment and the, and the sort of uh, the point about the post-truth environment. I think social media, for all its faults, and you know, we could have an entire panel just on the, the problems with social media, especially when it comes to democracy or genocide or anything. Uh, I think social media's sort of lack of respect, I suppose, uh, for, for big names, big titles, you know, uh, affiliations and things like that, that really, really mattered in 2003, the so-called very serious people. Uh, I don't remember who came up with that phrase. I don't know if it was Paul Krugman or someone else, but I think that very accurately described uh, that, the run-up to that war. I came to the U.S. as a college student in 2003, and I really couldn't believe the types of things that were taken for granted or the types of things that were given credibility in places like the New York Times editorial page or the Wall Street Journal editorial page, uh, simply by virtue of coming from New York Times or Wall Street Journal, col Wall Street Journal columnists. And I think that sort of uh, iconoclasm has sort of uh, shifted the U.S. in a direction for the better, I think. I think this idea of, you know, trust me because I have the expertise, trust me because I have the proper affiliation, I think that's sort of been uh, extinguished really by social media. And I think Twitter especially would, I, I don't, I mean, frankly, I don't think the Iraq war would have happened if Twitter was around. I genuinely don't think so because the types of bald-faced sort of comments and claims that were being made in 2003 would not survive the scrutiny of, of social media today uh, in a way that they did survive the scrutiny of the New York Times and Wall Street Journal uh, 20 years ago. Uh, so overall, I would say something like this could absolutely happen again because the fundamental sort of causes haven't really been addressed. There are a couple of things on the, on the sideline, that, on the margins, that maybe uh, mitigate this a little bit. But overall, I would say uh, we haven't really moved on from, from that period. Um, thank you. Look forward to the questions and comments. I'm just going to call it now. There's about a 50% chance I'm going to spill some water all over the place, so just mentally prepare yourselves for that. Um, <clears throat> I just want to start off by saying that I am honored to be here at the Cato Institute. Uh, this, as has been discussed previously, was one of the only organizations in Washington and in the country that did not buckle to pressure to fall in a line and support the Iraq War. Uh, I was introduced as an Iraq War veteran. I'm proud of my service in the Marines, and I'm not ashamed of my service in Iraq. But to be totally honest, the title Iraq War Veteran is something that should not exist. And it would not have existed as more of our key institutions behaved like Cato, and if more of our leaders had the courage to halt the march to war in 2002 and 2003. So even though it's vogue right now among many of my fellow conservatives to hate on the Cato Institute, and I just have to say, sometimes justifiably, um, for me, uh, Cato will always have my enduring respect because of the brave and often lonely stance they took opposing not just the Iraq war, but the entirety of our reckless foreign policy. So thank you, Justin, for having me here today. Um, so the question that was posed was, what has changed? And well, everything has changed, but nothing has at all. Uh, 
Um, what do I mean by that? Well, starting off with what has changed, I think that there seems to be at least a grudging recognition among most foreign policy pundits and policymakers that the Iraq war was a mistake, however shallow that recognition is. And we failed in our ultimate objective to create a model democracy in the Middle East that would herald the emergence of liberalism in that region. There also seems to be, at least on the surface, uh, not another desire to do a large-scale nation-building or counterinsurgency mission in the Middle East or South Asia. Uh, in addition, unlike 2003, you have a more robust coalition of policy institutions and advocacy groups that are willing to stand up to the foreign policy status quo and advance an alternative to American primacy. Uh, it is no longer just four or five guys in a phone booth from Cato or the American Conservative, as uh, Paul Jagot, who's uh, an editorial writer for the Wall Street Journal, said in 2004. Um, you have many more institutions, like the Quincy Institute. You have more centers in, in, at places like the Carnegie Endowment, which did have people, obviously, were, were raising concerns about the war in Iraq. Um, but you have more scholars spread across more uh, centers and, and institutions and academia and in the policy space on both the right and left. And I, I think that is a positive development. And that in part has created two political conditions where you have more elected officials willing to challenge the dominant uh, elite foreign policy consensus. We saw recently Governor Ron DeSantis from Florida join President, former President Trump in criticizing our current Ukraine policy. You had uh, the new senator from Ohio, J.D. Vance, who gave a, a really, I think, overall excellent interview with the American conservative on his foreign policy beliefs. It would have been very unlikely in 2003 or 2004 to see a Republican senator from a state like Ohio saying some of the things that he was saying in print. Um, so there has been some changes that I think overall have been positive and uh, is a, are signs that we've moved in a better direction in terms of American foreign policy since the war in Iraq. On the other hand, really, in a lot of ways, nothing has changed. And uh, the professor dived into a lot of this, so I apologize if it sounds a little bit repetitive, but we have to be honest that the worst advocates, cheerleaders, and purveyors of the worst lies of the Iraq War have not been held accountable. They continue to exercise outsized influence in most of our key institutions. What are the media? I mean, it is an absolute disgrace that Jeffrey Goldberg and David Frum uh, are in effectively running what is supposed to be one of our most, you know, august and respected uh, publications, The Atlantic, and that they can, with a straight face, continue to lie about the Iraq war, uh, mainly push the lie still, after 20 years, that there were large-scale chemical uh, weapon stockpiles in Iraq. Um, in government, you still have key officials, in this current administration as well, too, uh, that were responsible at on, either on the periphery or in central roles for creating the conditions for the Iraq war and ultimately advancing failed strategies. And then, of course, academia as well, too. As it was mentioned previously, you have people like Condi Rice and others, um, uh, you know, fulfilling Ellie Cohen, uh, holding key chairs and leadership positions in important foreign policy academic institutions. Uh, there's also the reputational rehabilitation, if they, if they really even needed it in the first place, to be honest, of people like George W. Bush, Dick Cheney, and his daughter Liz Cheney, and even Bill Kristol, because of their supposed brave stances against President Trump. And uh, some people in the room may disagree with it, but I have to be honest, you know, had Donald Trump bombed Tehran, overthrow uh, Assad, 
I firmly believe that Liz Cheney and Bill Crystal probably would have been cheering on Stop the Steal in the lead up to 1-6. Um, but I think the worst thing, though, is the fact there has not been a repudiation of the mindset that led us to the war in Iraq. In particular, the belief that American power has no limits and that the United States should behave like it doesn't have any constraints on its power. There's still the belief, even if it is more whispered than shouted, that the United States and the United States alone can impose liberal democracy in a top-down manner, whether through armed force or other means, and that, we're, and that it will still somehow be successful despite the uh, debacles in Iraq and Afghanistan. For many of our foreign policy-making elite, there is not a question, it is just simply a question of willpower, not of resources, capabilities, trade-offs, or prioritization. It's just our will to do something, and that is our only constraint. And we see this most prevalent in the current debate around Ukraine. On the op-ed and editorial pages, and I just have to pause and say I'm talking specifically about those because I think, particularly recently, you've seen some very brave reporting, uh, like the reporting that Jonathan Leday did, um, about what is actually going on in Ukraine in multiple outlets. The Washington Post, New York Times in particular, has some reporters who've gone to the front lines in Ukraine and really kind of exposed, like, hey, the war is not going as well as a lot of people in Washington, D.C. think. And I don't think it's a coincidence that a lot of those reporters were also veterans of the Iraq war or saw how the media failed in the lead-up to the war. So I'm not, um, in this particular case, impugning the straight news reporting, which, and I think many cases, when they get to the front lines and actually aren't thrown out of the country by the Ukrainian government, uh, are doing a great job. But the op-ed and editorial pages clearly have not learned the lessons of the Iraq war, much less have the cable news programs and the types of people you book. There is really no reason why we should see an American general who was likely responsible for many of the failures on Iraq and Afghanistan go on a, a cable news show and refuse to acknowledge the fact that the United States industrial base cannot sustain the current rates of Ukrainian ammunition expenditure. Uh, these, are, these are individuals who are taught that wars are won by logistics, but they don't want to talk about logistics. They just want to throw out cliches about World War II or Neville Chamberlain or Winston Churchill. You have diplomats um, who, in the same way, want to just talk about every other war and every other politician except for probably one of the most important wars that's led us to where we are today now in many cases, and that's World War I. And then you have fiscally conservative members of Congress who call $130 billion a year in support of the war in Ukraine. I want to be clear, that's not all going to Ukraine. That includes uh, in support of American operations in Eastern Europe and whatnot, but it is a significant spend in support of that war. They say that $130 billion a year in a time of trillion-dollar-year deficits and a $30 trillion national debt is cheap. And so that, to me, shows that the lessons of the Iraq war have not been internalized uh, by either our policymakers, many in our key institution of the media and academia or other places as well too. And while again there has been some positive developments in the foreign policy space since the Iraq war, the fact that that mindset hasn't changed is very dangerous and as a professor said, could lead us to a place where we do have another Iraq. 
Um, one thing I, I just want to um, point out and address, and, and other speakers have alluded to it, I'm not saying it's been glossed over in any way, is that I think we need to remember the Iraq war is not in the past. We still have 2,500 troops in Iraq, and it actually could be higher because the Biden administration, just like previous administration, plays this game where they move people in and out from Kuwait so they don't show up on the uh, manning numbers in Iraq or they do the same thing in Syria. So it could be as, as much as, as 3,000 or maybe even 4,000, depending on the units they're moving through. Um, they're there. They are not in the um, height of combat like you saw in like the Battle of Fallujah or during the invasion in 2003. But on a regular basis, you have troops, particularly out west in al-Assad, that are getting shelled uh, or hit by drones or by um, rockets. Uh, resupply convoys, from what I've heard, are regularly attacked. It is still an active war zone, despite what the Biden administration says, and they claim that combat operations have ended. Um, I was in the Marine Corps, and, and I always was told, like, hey, if you're getting shot at by a rocket, you're getting shot at by a rocket, and that is combat, despite what people here in D.C. might be saying. So I bring this up because um, they're, they're there. They're there with an, uh, a mission that is completely nonsensical. Essentially, it is framed as a training mission. Uh, what our troops are, who our troops are training are uh, members of the Iraqi military who are allied in supporting the Iranian-backed militias that are shooting at our troops. So essentially, we are subsidizing the people who are shooting at our troops. I have heard people, a lot of people want to just ignore our presence in Iraq, but the ones that do um, are pushing this fantasy that somehow 2,500 troops in a couple bases spread across Iraq um, are a bulwark against increased Iranian influence in Iraq. The reality is, is, is Iran became the dominant power in Iraq the minute we pulled down Saddam's statue in Fido Square. Marines of 1st Tank Battalion and 3rd uh, Battalion 4th Marines did that. Um, from that point on, I, I, Iran was destined to be the dominant power in Iraq, and it's just an absurd uh, justification to stay there. But what is most dangerous about their presence is that they serve as a tripwire to a larger regional war. Um, we, we've seen that almost happen numerous times over the last few years, and it is still a risk that that could happen. And I think it should go without saying is the last thing we need right now, considering what is going on in Europe, uh, the, the rising tensions in East Asia, the last thing that we need is another major war in the Middle East. So with that, look for the questions. Thank you very much to all of you for being here. It's always hard when you pull one of these things together. You want to deconflict it and make sure that uh, people won't sort of step on each other's remarks. So it's only just in the cosmic sense of the world that I've kind of caught the hot potato uh, and had a little bit of my thunder stolen here, but I will try to riff. So stay with me if you will. Thank you, Dan. Um, so, so let's start with the good news uh, against my normal uh, proclivities. Uh, I think you know the United States is not likely to invade Iraq again. That's a difference. Um, I think it's not likely to invade a medium-sized country really anywhere and try and chase down some phantasmagorical weapons of mass destruction while trying to hot swap an authoritarian dictatorship for a liberal democracy. I think that's off the table. I think it's good news. Um, so that's as sunny as I get ever. So bear with me here because it's about to get darker than that. Um, Iraq, I think, has 
come to be seen as a broader example, much to the chagrin of the kind of Middle East studies community, of US engagement in the Middle East. I think it's kind of tainted the whole idea of US engagement in the Middle East. We saw some of this in the uh, Obama administration's Syria red lines debate. Um, there really is a kind of lingering, hey, wait a minute, you want to do what? sense about any military action of any scale um, in the Middle East. Um, we may even be uh, on board with repealing two of the AUMFs, uh, 1991 and 2002, which were used to justify wars with Iraq, to which I say congratulations and keep going. Uh, the 2001 AUMF is sitting right there, ripe for the plucking. Uh, go ahead and take it. Um, and I think, you know, just to sort of bring me down to earth and bring this sort of sour, pessimistic Justin back into the room, um, there's a weird thing that's going on with public opinion, right? I think in the foreign policy community, um, in Washington, nobody's really fanning the flames of fears about terrorism the way they were in 2002 or 2003. There's sort of been a grudging acknowledgement that John Kerry's derided remark during the 2004 presidential campaign that our goal should be to get terrorism to where it's a nuisance. Uh, if you remember, he was like laughed out of polite company for a couple of weeks for having said that. That's kind of the conventional wisdom among the elites. But the weird thing is, if you look at public opinion with respect to terrorism, it outranks, depending on which poll you look at, crime, jobs, immigration, climate change. And I wouldn't even know this were it not for the fact that my colleague John Mueller did a big study. And John has a way of parachuting into these debates and saying everything you know about this is wrong. And this was one of those that I read and I thought, oh god, everything I know about this is wrong. Um, so I think what that translates into in terms of policy what does it mean that the public is still says it's kind of freaked out about terrorism? What do you have to do policy-wise to, to, to satisfy that desire is unclear to me. But there is this lingering sense among the public that something really scary um, endures with respect to terrorism. Let me get into the big pessimistic stuff. Um, the problem in 2002 and 2003 was a missing debate and a missing demand for debate, right? I think it's, we, we have this goo-goo marketplace of ideas conception sometimes of how policy gets made in Washington, and that's wrong. Um, demand for debates is what you want to look at. And so I think if you look, superficially at least, at some of the foreign policy issues facing the United States today, you want to ask, are these debates getting the, uh, uh, are these problems getting the debates that they warrant? So Dan talked a little bit about um, the Ukraine war. Um, I think there are some substantive issues missing from our debate about the Ukraine war. So I, I got some gray hair. I've been around the block uh, in Washington for quite some time. Um, I had people tell me in peacetime regularly that nuclear weapons were so dangerous and so scary um, that we should probably get rid of all of them. We should get rid of our arsenal. The Russians should get rid of their arsenal. The Chinese, everybody, the UK, France, down the line. We should just global zero, you could call it. It's a fine argument, it's a defensible argument. Um, but if nuclear weapons in peacetime are so dangerous that we need to work for their abolition, what do nuclear weapons mean in the world's largest nuclear weapons state when it perceives itself as being in a proxy war with a hostile alliance on its border? Is that double the nuclear risk of peacetime? Is it five times the nuclear risk of peacetime? Is it 10 times? I don't know. I know it's bigger logically, by inference. Um, how many congressional hearings have there been on the nuclear risks inherent in our policy in Ukraine? I, I, I haven't heard any. 
So there really are some sort of uh, uh, primal, like, like basic issues here that seem really important. If we get the nuclear risks in our policy in Ukraine wrong, we're going to feel it. It's not going to be something that you can flip the page on the newspaper and read. There used to be pages on newspapers, kids. We read them on paper. Um, you know, and read the Garfield cartoon instead of looking at the story. This is really consequential stuff that I think there isn't demand for debate on. Look at the defense budget, right? Um, we're rapidly approaching a trillion dollar defense budget. And I think there's a very plausible case that even given a trillion dollar defense budget, our strategy in the context of our budget is insolvent. It's underfunded, right? So are we having lots of congressional hearings calling for massive increases in the defense budget and for massive decreases in the defense budget if there's a plausible argument that the strategy is insolvent? I'm not hearing them. So I do think that if you want to look at enduring uh, pathologies in Washington, it's that there aren't demand for these kinds of debates. So what is my solution to this? Well, I don't have a solution, but I have, let's call them conditions that I think uh, are conducive to more robust debate about security policy. Um, Professor Butt mentioned this, and I will, you know, again, I will echo his remarks. I think partisanship is probably a good thing in foreign policy. I think it might be the only way, or one of the only ways, to produce meaningful debate in foreign policy. If you look at the Iraq War Senate vote, um, of course, all Republicans voted yes. It was 77 to 23. And the Democrats were split. 23 Democrats voted against the resolution, and 29 voted uh, in favor of the resolution. If you look at the Ukraine aid Senate vote, it was 86 to 11, with all 11 of the no votes GOP, and the Democrats um, uh, voting yes, along with 39 Republicans. I think if you, bear with me here, can sort the parties into a peace party and a war party, you're going to get more robust debates about security policy that look like inter alia are debates about abortion or taxes or the environment where you have activated groups of people who care deeply about the issues fighting. Now, people say our debates about abortion and taxes in the environment are gross, and in many cases they are gross, but they're debates, and debates are useful for uncovering important truths. By inference, the lack of debate is not useful for uncovering important truths. So I'm not a big partisan politics guy, but partisanship may be one of the only tools that we have to produce debate on this stuff in Washington. Exogenous shocks, number two. Um, I think you can run an experiment where um, the people who were working assiduously through the 1990s about uh, regime change in Iraq, absent 9-11, don't get their war. Right? Um, I, I'm not a big ideological uh, fellow traveler with the neoconservatives, but I think there's a lot to be learned from them in the sort of Weberian political sense. Right? You never know when an exogenous shock is going to come along and take possibilities, policy ideas that seemed fanciful previously, and make them into live options. What will be the exogenous shock? Will it be some sort of economic collapse or something of this nature? I don't know. I hope not. But we don't know when those exogenous shocks will come that will make different possibilities possible, different uh, policies possible. And in conclusion, just to make myself really, really unpopular here, um, scarcity is probably a good thing for U.S. foreign policy. If strategy is about choice in the, in the old aphorism, not choosing is not strategy. If everything is a priority, nothing is a priority. And I think. Um, 
In 2002 and 2003, it looked like the United States really had unlimited supplies of both guns and butter. Under those conditions, policymakers don't feel the need to make hard choices uh, about policies. Um, and I think if you look at the sequester, which everyone hated, the reason the sequester happened was the perception of scarcity, was the perception that everybody's ox was going to be gored a little, or else someone's ox was going to be gored a lot. So these questions, partisanship, exogenous shocks, and relative scarcity, or at least the perception of scarcity, are the sorts of things that I think are likely to produce um, more robust when it comes to US security policy. Thank you for putting up with me. I'll pass things over to Sumatra Maitre. Well, the problem with uh, coming after Dan and Justin is like they speak all the smart things and I don't have anything to say. Um, before I start, uh, I was researching about, like, this is why I made some cliff notes. Um, do you guys remember what was the top rock song between May and August in 2011, uh, 20, 2001? It was Stained, I'm on the Outside. It was a sign of things to come. Um, anyway, the question that's posed uh, in front of us today is, number one, are things different? Uh, number two, if not, why not? Uh, so I'm, the, the first question is mostly answered by most of the people who have spoken before me, so I'm going to focus briefly on that and then focus on what went wrong and what is still wrong. Um, the first cause of everything being wrong is structural. Um, realists love structure. Um, Sorry, um, I, sh I should refer to two really good papers on this one. The first one is uh, by the great Nuno Montairo, who's uh, named Unrest Assured, where he explained that why unipolarity is not peaceful. Um, you know, he said unipolar systems provide incentives for two other types of war, pitting against the sole great power against another state, uh, or exclusively uh, against other states, both defensive and offensive dominance. Um, so in short, unipolarity is kind of like a get-out-of-jail card. You, know, you, you, you can, you're, it allows you to be dumb. Either way, without any immediate consequence, you can be dumb. Even that, are and not Hans Morgenthau's idea of a realist great power with a, kind of like a smart platonic epistocracy uh, deciding public opinion. Uh, obviously, it's influenced by a hyper-liberal kind of activist media and you know group. Uh, with not much rational demands for a grand strategy. So that's point number one. Um, it's also part of the reason why I don't like the imperial framing, not because I'm from the UK, but because there are empires which are really smart. You know, believe me, uh, they understand their priorities. Um, the second paper is by our modest Justin Logan. He mentioned the contents of that paper for me, but he didn't mention his name. It was Structural Domestic Politics, where he mentioned uh, that restraint essentially doesn't sell. Um, no one benefits from retrenchment. It's a, it's a fact. You know, there are far too many lobbies, external variables which oppose realism, um, and absent external great powers balancing the U.S. Uh, inside the country, a parallel unipolarity sort of exists, which uh, forms its you know, dominant political coalition that then promotes and defends an activist grand strategy. Uh, now comes the interesting part. Once the structure argument is out of the way, um, you, one of the puzzle which I, 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 I've been and given that you know I was 18 year old when 2001 uh, in 2001, uh, I always thought you know someone mentioned Rob Reiner you know in, in the previous panel. Have you guys seen his tweets on Ukraine? 
like what went wrong? You know, what changed? Like he was extremely opposed to Iraq. You know, he's like actively, you know, seeking fascism in Ukraine. You know, people who used to read Wonkit and Gawker Media and listen to Green Day are now just, you know, trying and trying to fight wars everywhere in the world. So something changed, right? And uh, part of the reason is foreign policy is obviously not international relations. You know, it, it's, the, it's the intersection of domestic politics with unipolarity, which is the, the key to understand, uh, you know, where we are, where we are. Um, quite a few changes since 2003. The short answer is like, yes, you know, it has changed. The medium answer is not in a good way. Um, you know, in, in 2003, for example, we had the largest uh, spontaneous anti-war protests in Europe and America. There's not much that you see these days on, in Libya and Syria and, and, and for Ukraine. Um, not because people are not, you know, disinterested in conflicts. There still are. Polls after polls kind of show that, you know, no one is interested in conflict. One of the things, again, uh, that I saw the other day um, when this thing was going on was like when the no-fly zone um, thing was floated out, everyone was supporting it, and then it was explained, you know, what a no-fly zone is, you know, the poll, the support instantly dropped. Um, so, sorry, what was I? Oh, there you go. Uh, which brings my, brings my first point, um, asymmetry in propaganda. Um, put simply, realists are at a disadvantage because most of the elite media and the national security bureaucracy uh, have almost a whole grasp on this informational hegemony. Uh, most conflicts happen uh, undecided by the executive, in a way, uh, subsurface, decided by the kind of like a permanent bureaucracy, uh, which, thanks to George W. Bush, uh, expanded to this beast that we see now. Um, they, in turn, have a stranglehold in elite media. You know, uh, you see the, the national security guests coming to Jake Tapper or Erin Burnett or Margaret Brennan, and, and you, you know, you, it's, it's kind of like a range of opinion ranging from B minus all the way to B plus. So, you know, that's, that's one of the reasons. Um, Trump was successful in a little bit of way, in, in his own way, to kind of like somehow manage to circumvent this informational stronghold. But then Trump was Trump and uh, couldn't really manage to build a movement. I was kind of like handicapped by his own personal choices. Um, but the, the point is, if you have to sell realism, you have to speak in a language that people understand one of trade-offs, you know, not the language of values or ethics, not crying about how spending money in Ukraine is also killing Ukrainians. You know, that's, that's a framing that's not going to sell. You know, at the end of the day, if it's a, it's a, if it's a value question, then uh, you have to do something about it. Um, but talk in terms that most people would instinctively understand, that we don't really care about who's fighting there because that's not an area of our strategic interest. And, uh, you know, stop the cash on weapons and bad things happen, you know? So that's, that's one way to kind of like sell realism in language and medium that reaches out to the most realist crowd. That's the normal people, um, you know? That's, that's a way to frame the debate. The second is, as I mentioned, the permanent bureaucracy. It's, uh, like, there is no way of putting it. I mean, it's, it's an, they are an enemy in a way. Look, I mean, I am not technically a libertarian, but they were right in, 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 in 2001, and they have been consistently right about this thing. Um, you know, it, it's, a, it's a system. There are obviously like good patriotic Americans. I mean, I know someone who is an acquisitions expert in the US Air Force, she's a deputy, and she was there in, 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 in Afghanistan when the you know, withdrawal was happening. And after 20 years, she was still saying that, hey, you know, we need to stay. 
that's not her fault. You know, obviously, you know, if you're working in that system, you are inclined to kind of like perpetuate that system to carry on. Uh, a, but the system is, you know, destructive to the very fabric of society in a way. Uh, there's an economic angle to it. Uh, due to the Great War on Terror, there was this massive expansion of bureaucracy in the, in the words of Peter Turchin, like the, the amount of surplus elites that happened. Uh, and uh, there are other names for it. I can't even pronounce most of them, like precariatization or something like that. Um, Kevin Williamson called it that Big Kalin is getting paid. Um, but essentially, it's a rapid and uncontrolled expansion of the social democratic state. Uh, the establishment of guild protections and structures within the newly expanded or pre-existing professional fields that they hope to inhabit. And historically, by the way, um, surplus elites have been the cause of most revolutionary activism and exporting ideology abroad from Europe in 1848 to Russia in the first half of the 20th century, and we kind of know how that turned out. Um, third, uh, the bureaucracy is filled by activist disciplines. Now, this is a pet hobby horse of mine. Like, if you, if you have to understand the the social change that's happening or the social dynamics that's influencing those social changes, you have to understand the places where they are, the ideas are being churned out. You know, I'm not a huge fan of the the marketplace of ideas as well. Like, you know, but but there is a marketplace and it's kind of like dominated uh, in in some ways. Um, the, the instincts, for example, which are seeking to uh, have a war on terror or to kind of continue uh, spreading rights in Afghanistan or promote rights in Kiev or Georgia or Florida are essentially the same instincts. You know, it, it's, 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 there's, a, there's a phenomenal research paper that came out in 2008 by Milenia, I can't remember the name, um, which showed how the changes in studies of international relations happen from realism, military strategy, international security, to international organizations and human rights and global developments and environmental politics, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. So less Thucydides, more Cynthia Enlow. Um, less naval tonnage counting, for example, and more ideas on identities. And that has a cumulative uh, influence in, in some of the stuff that we see today. And that was in 2008. Like I was, you know, starting my PhD at that point of time. It's, a lot of things happened since then. Um, it, it's far worse now. But the, but the point is, there are fresh-faced, starry-eyed students coming out with the aim of joining the same bureaucracy that is kind of pushing a more activist foreign policy abroad. This is a chain that is happening. We might like it, we might dis disagree with it, but that's happening, and that's something which uh, one needs to think about. Um, and finally, before ending, this, uh, uh, again, I don't want to take too much time, but there's this one quote which, from Peter Hitchens in 2001, before even the Afghanistan war happened, where he mentioned that, you know, when the bugles call, the conservative's instinct is to rally to the tattered colors, however boneheaded the government, so uh, that's foresight, you know, seeing that in, that in those days. But fundamentally, the, what he wrote is that the rearrangement of loyalties goes beyond Afghanistan. It goes as far back as Kosovo, where essentially kind of like the entire nationalist instinct was considered to be an enemy against any kind of internationalism. Um, and, you know, most of the people in the right at that point of time, some obviously, but most of the people at the, in, in the right did not grasp 
that how essentially the old concepts changed. NATO, for example, which was once a, kind of like a strong alliance which just guarded the very strategic interests of Western Europe is not that thing anymore. It's a, it's a, it's a changed institution. It's a, it's a, it's a different beast. Um, the European Union, for example, has metamorphosed into some kind of like a, you know, the same left-wing idea that European Union was a capitalist conspiracy. You know, I remember those. Um, it's kind of like, you know, full-on support of European Union's expansion in, in Ukraine, which is kind of like fueling the conflict. So, so those are my four points, um, and I'd, uh, I don't know, I'd, I'd, I'd let questions uh, to decide if I've got anything else to add, but thank you. Um, we are taking questions online as well, so for uh, anybody who is not in the audience here and wishes to submit them, um, I have an iPad right here and I'll be checking that. Um, but, but maybe we can start off with, um, with you, Dan. You mentioned uh, the recent comments by Ron DeSantis and, and Trump and J.D. Vance coming out against the current US, the Ukraine strategy. How much do you think partisanship plays into um, our discussion of these things and, and where uh, voters uh, fall, on, fall on the issue as well? Well, this this is a, a, a very interesting topic and something that I've um, you know been very interested in, and, and a lot of my roles in previous organizations was actually crafting, as as you pointed out in my bio, campaign strategies to to try and achieve some of these policy changes. So part of that's been examining voter behavior, and I know that there's probably going to be some panelists that, that maybe have some different views than I do, but I I do think that there is a increasing recognition, particularly among policymakers on the right, that political incentives, however small or big they are, do favor a less interventionist foreign policy. And there has been examples of this in recent years where you've seen politicians ultimately um, triumph in elections because they have at least been perceived uh, to uh, be supportive of a less interventionist foreign policy. I think the biggest example was President Trump in, in 2016. Um, there was a very famous study by uh, two professors, Professor Kreiner and Chin. Uh, it was actually cited in, and I, I thought very explained very well in a recent Washington Post story um, uh, that it, it basically explained that ultimately Donald Trump won the 2016 election because of his foreign policy views, because he was viewed in key counties in Michigan, Wisconsin, and Pennsylvania as less of a hawk than Hillary Clinton. Again, fairly or not, I think that he ultimately did prove to be, uh, after you know two years in his administration, somebody who um, really did want to ultimately roll back uh, some more interventions abroad, whether it was in Afghanistan or Syria, he was undermined in that regard. But in 2016, um, that politically benefited him and ultimately probably led to his ultimate victory. So I think that, that you do see more, particularly on the right, um, candidates starting to believe that and adopt that, and they see that in polling. But most importantly, they, they I think, see that in some activists in their states or districts or in key presidential states who are ultimately 
um, more and more uh, fired up about our foreign policy failures. Um, at the organization I currently work at, we have a, um, a companion organization, um, which is a 51C4 that does um, uh, activist education organizing. We can't do one activist call without somebody asking a question about what's going on in Ukraine. And there are extreme worries among these people about our Ukraine policy and where it could lead. So I think that that is contributing in part to um, this this change in tone. I think individually some of these candidates have had their own reflections. I think uh, Senator Vance, again, I would encourage you to read his American Conservative interview. He explains it really well. I think his Iraq war experience contributed to that change. I think Governor DeSantis as well, too, I think is doing a reevaluation of maybe some of his earlier positions. So. There's a lot of factors, but I think it is fair to say that political incentives are driving some of this behavior. On the left, we've seen a lot less of that as time's gone on. There was a point at which the Progressive Caucus submitted a letter that they then withdrew. Um, I wonder, a few of you have mentioned partisanship in, in your remarks, um, but I wonder how you see uh, the control of government for, for the party in power and influencing uh, the terms of discussion within their own party and perhaps silencing some of the uh, critics on, on the fringe or on the outside and, and um, how that plays into the broader political discussion over something like this. Uh, just real briefly, I think you know, the interesting thing about the Progressive Caucus letter from my point of view um, is that you know, ostensibly the narrative, the above-the-fold narrative there was you know, Democrats on the left attack a Democratic president. That's the, that's the sort of way it was read. But the administration itself, when they were asked about the letter, said, and I'm paraphrasing here, but this is the gist of what they said, we, we didn't really disagree with anything in the letter. They were shouted down not by, you know, they weren't shut down like George W. Bush would have shut down Walter Jones if he had broken sooner than he did uh, against the Iraq war. They were shut down not at all by uh, a, a president, but by the kind of... Uh, 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 Zeitgeist by the kind of hooting mob um, of people who who said, you know, how dare you call into question the idea that Ukraine should reclaim Crimea or whatever the case may be? And so I think it was a to me it was just sort of incompetence on the part of the people that did that letter, because if the administration whose policy you're ostensibly criticizing says they don't agree with anything in your letter, then why retract it? And I guess I have not follow up to that. I, the response um, in the media was was pretty um, heavy. There was a lot. There was a lot of backlash. Um, do you see uh, that discussion uh, going in a way that you could compare to 2002 or 2003, or, or how would you relate that to um, our past media debates over uh, ahead of wars? Yeah. Uh, can people hear me? Uh, I think that, yeah, I think the the current climate is very different. Uh, at least when it comes to, at least when it comes to uh, media, professional media, social media. Uh, I think the the sort of I think 2003 was typified by this consensus. Uh, whether the consensus was fair or justified is a whole other question. I think most people here would say it probably wasn't. But for better or worse, there was a very widespread consensus, uh, both amongst sort of uh, 
you know the political elite as well as sort of the establishment media and there was very very little uh you know questioning of of that consensus whereas today for for different reasons whether it's partisan politics whether it's ideological uh you know uh divergences whether it's because of you know the the memory of the iraq war itself and you know it's sort of endogenous to that endogenous to that process uh certainly i and 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 the the onset of sort of social media and the electronic media in general which sort of has cloistered people into their own sort of algorithms right where people sort of read read the things that they agree with and and not the things that they don't agree with so i think that that is a fundamentally different reality to to what existed 20 years ago so i i do think that the media environment is much more uh sort of uh typified by something other than a consensus today yeah so the expert debate playing out on twitter is helping to diversify how we how we discuss this and interpret it is that what Yeah, I mean, you know, I don't want to speak up for Twitter, uh, especially, you know, especially in a post-Elon world, but uh yeah, I think, you know, things like Twitter do have a role, and I think the I think the you know, especially what I was mentioning earlier, this sort of uh, iconoclasm, this like we sh- don't have to respect you just because you have a a fancy affiliation next to your name is sometimes not great like if you know if someone who studies vaccines tells you hey this is what's going to happen with vaccines and you ignore them because you've quote unquote done your own research obviously that's not great right but i think overall especially when it comes to these types of foreign policy questions in which there can be much more of a debate than you know is this vaccine going to work or not uh yeah i do think the lack of respect for credentials and affiliations and who do you write for and where have you worked for the last 20 years i think that that's overall a good thing at least when it comes to foreign policy I I agree with that but I would just say is that there's also a danger that social media can be weaponized. Um I was thinking about your remarks professor and and you know I kept going back and forth in my head it's like yes maybe it could have prevented the march to war and slowed it down because you would have people more willing to share, you know, counter narrative, you would have had a more opportunity to amplify like the reporting of of Jonathan Lindey but On the other hand, what we've learned a lot recently especially with things like the Twitter files, but even before that is there, you know, these social media companies have been have allowed themselves in many cases to be bent to the will of the security state. Um and we have seen uh times where there has been the suppression, for example, of, you know, questioning of the narrative around the Ukraine war, or, you know, some of it was you know most of it in my view was legitimate it was classified as misinformation and things like that so it it's it's it, i i know i'm kind of going back and forth here but i think it's important to raise that danger as well too in uh, so i mean to just um on so on the U, on the ukraine question i mean similarly to to before the administration has worked with reporters and you know they've been just declassifying information in the lead up to the war and um they have um briefed journalists um how uh how does the effect of putin then invading ukraine does that buy the administration more credibility in your eyes or with the media and how might that change how how we've approached uh US intervention or US support for Ukraine um over the last year. Uh briefly no. Uh one of the reason is because 
that fundamentally the calculation of the worldview of this administration is not very different from the previous couple of administrations, as Patrick Porter wrote in his in his in his paper in for international security. The grand strategy didn't really change. Um, Ukraine, uh, Putin's in you know invasion of Ukraine. Obviously, it, it's a horrible thing, but it was if not in explicit details, but it somehow predicted uh, that it would come, given if we continue to kind of like push NATO and European Union expansion. One of the things that happened immediately after the invasion was Joe Biden said the exact same words that Barack Obama said when the Syrian spring, Assad was doing that, Assad must go. So Joe Biden kind of like said the exact same thing about Putin, that Putin must step down. You know, there needs to be a regime change. That kind of like boxed the administration. So that's one thing. The second is, uh, obviously, again, uh, these are the things that are difficult, these are difficult to answer without process tracing and being privy to the administration's internal debates. But from what one can see from the outside is there is this contradiction between the, the state's view of what things are happening and the CIA Pentagon's view of what things are happening in Ukraine. Um, the second uh, group of people, they're much more cautious about uh, a more, more expansive footprint in Ukraine, although I'm, I'm not going to go too far into giving them credit, but at least they are far more cautious than, say, Tony Blinken, for example. So uh, it's, it's different in a way. Um, you know, I, professor, I don't want to disagree with the professor. Obviously, in 2003, there was this... Uh, unanimity in, in going to war, but that slowly kind of changed by 2004 and by 2007 it was gone. Like I remember 2007, 2008, you know, there was this huge opposition to George W. Bush, now partly because, maybe because that was like for partisan reasons, but, but also uh, there was this genuine diversity in media voices, which um, credit to social media, great, but you don't really find much diversity when it comes to uh, pushing interventions in Ukraine when it comes to at least the top 10 names. So, yeah, I'm, I'm much more pessimistic about that question. I don't know if that really answers, but, yeah. Justin, you'd mentioned the nuclear weapons risk uh, and the fact that we haven't any congressional hearings over, over Ukraine. Um, what do you think it would take for there to be um, more of a public demand for that sort of accountability? Suddenly, I'm reminded of Pascal's wager. Um, by then, you know, it might be too late. Um, I, look, part of the irritating thing about that question is, you know, I study this stuff and people pay me to do it. I can't put a number on it, right? I, I can't tell you it's double the risk or five times the risk or ten times the risk or what have you. And those are the sorts of answers that people like to questions. Um, and so, I, you know, it is, you know, Congress, if, if I went down and pitched this idea that you guys should talk about the nuclear risks in Ukraine, they would be like, well, what, what, you know, this is just theology, right? It's like shelling and people, you know, doing calculations on the back of a napkin. Um, and so I think it is not, but, but yet at the same time, it's very important. So I'm left just to mix shelling with Eisenhower. You know, Eisenhower said plans are nothing and planning is everything. And I think you want to think through these problems, right? Um, but I think, again, the demand for worrying about the nuclear risks that are, that are involved here uh, is close to zero. So by the time we have demand for it, we might be gone. So do you see us making the same mistakes today as maybe we have in, in the past? 
What is it someone else is taking? I don't want to use surgery. People have heard from me enough. I want to. I want to. Well, I, I, I would just um, say that I, again, I think the biggest problem is the mindset hasn't changed. Is that there is a refusal to recognize that America has limits, and that is incredibly dangerous, and it could lead to a lot of bad places, including to the the, the previous question you asked and nuclear escalation, and uh, and, and still. People admit that America can't do everything everywhere all at once. Um, until they absorb that, we're going to continue to have bad foreign policy decision making. And I, I see that as the fundamental problem. So we have a question from an audience member asking about the, the Iraq Authority cancellation and whether we'll ever get back to a declaration of war process. Um, could I ask the panel if what you think of that, if you could answer this, um, this question? Yeah, I'm not really a scholar of uh, the domestic politics of foreign policy, but uh, the people who I read on this score would, would not probably put a lot of confidence in the position that, uh, that there's checks and balances institutionally. Uh, for the most part, especially when it comes to security policy, uh, Presidents and cabinets have a great deal of leeway. Uh, there's a lot of funny, funky things you can do, uh, legally and extra-legally, uh, that essentially start wars uh, before they're officially uh, um, promulgated so or waged. So, um, no, I, do, I think that's sort of a very legalistic and a very sort of narrow uh, reading of of where autonomy and where decision-making comes from, uh, especially in this country, especially at the presidential level. I, uh, I just want to say that I, I do think overall it is a good thing that the 2002 and 1991 AUMF is getting repealed. I don't want to overstate the, how big of a deal it is, but I think on a number of different levels it's good. First, it does remove one legal avenue for continuing the war um, in Iraq or potentially engaging in an, in an unauthorized war against Iran. I'd point out in 2014 that the Biden, or excuse me, the Obama Biden administration used the 2002 AUMF as a secondary legal justification um, to go to war against ISIS. Of course, they're using the 2001 AUMF as as the primary justification, and that is the mo more important. Um, authorization. But I think secondarily, it is getting muscle memory back for Congress. It is good constitutional hygiene. Anytime that happens, it's a good thing. Now, it's not going to stop the war in Iraq. It's not going to stop the war in Syria or what's going on in Yemen. Um, but it is a good first step. And I think it is incremental progress, however small it is. Professor Assen, you, you mentioned a little bit about the reputational cost or the lack thereof to uh, some, of the, some of the people driving um, our, our entry into the war um, in, in the early 2000s. Um, what kind of difference do you think that have, I mean, what would that accountability look like to you? And, and what kind of difference do you think it might make to the climate of debate today? So was the last question? What kind of difference it might make today? Yeah, I mean, ironically, the, 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 what I consider to be the American cause of war, which is this demonstration effect, itself sort of contains the explanation, right? Like when you show the consequences of a certain action, uh, then the idea is maybe other people don't follow that action if the consequences are severe enough. Um, 
I don't know. I mean, obviously, we can have a spectrum, right? At the extreme end, you know, people could be tried for war crimes. That's probably not going to happen at The Hague, right? But uh, not giving cushy positions at Stanford and the World Bank would be a start, I guess. Uh, I don't know where on the spectrum that would be. Uh, but yeah, I mean, obviously, I mean, the U I mean, when it comes to serious institutional legalistic consequences like jail, uh, obviously, that's not going to happen in this country, uh, given the given the exalted status of political elites. Um, but uh, there are certainly things short of that, uh, you know, a, a, a clearer, clearer denunciation from the political elite, uh, more events like this, I guess, um, you know, uh, uh, less respect for some of these names and the things that they've done uh, just by virtue of, oh, well, I guess you were president, so we have to call you president. Um, so yeah, I think re I think reputational costs can be borne without going into the sort of territory of, of legalistic costs. Although that itself should not necessarily be off the table, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but yeah, I mean, obviously, if if people suffer the consequences of bad decisions, the idea would be other people would make fewer of those types of decisions. But that never happened in this case, uh, as we can see. Perhaps we could get some questions from the audience, um, starting over here. Uh, yes, uh, my name is Kami Bhatt. Uh, I'm with the Pakistani Spectator. And my question is about, you mentioned that uh, people facing the consequences. Uh, I, I mean, I agree with people like Neocon, like uh, Scooter Libby, that you know some Muslims are genetically violent. They look for reason to fight and go to heaven and get 72 white virgin. So do you think after this consequence and suffering, they, they are kind of mellowed down now, and they don't look for shahadat, are going direct route to paradise by getting killed in the wars. Thanks. Uh, I just want to make sure I understand the question before I respond to it. Are you saying that, uh, so, so, Wow, okay. My question is, these neocon picked up Iraq because they knew that Muslims love to fight. Muslims love they to love fight. They love to kill each other because... Muslims love to kill each other. In shahadat, you know, okay. if you get killed in a war, you don't need any accountability before Muslim God. He sent you directly to heaven, uh, where you get 72 virgins. So this is the reason neocon picked up Iraq, because they knew deep down that you know these people would love to fight. I mean, I, I do help hold America responsible for that, Bush responsible for that. But Bush sent troops there mm. because he knew that nobody could stop them because they love to fight. They, loved, they love war, basically. OK, Thanks. well, I guess I would just dispute the premise of your question, sir. Uh, most Muslims love to fight, and Muslims love to blow each other up for 72 virgins. Uh, I, I mean, the, the nicest thing I can say about that claim is that it's wrong, I think. Um, uh, I don't think, uh, furthermore, to dispute the premise of your question, I don't think that's why the neocons picked Iraq. If they were worried about so-called jihadist terrorism, they would have started with their foremost ally in the Middle East, which is Saudi Arabia. Uh, and then maybe go on to Egypt, but you know, obviously those countries were left untouched. Um, and Iraq had one of the more secular 
not to say not to say liberal, but certainly one of the most secular-minded governments in the Middle East at the time. So the idea that there would be a jihadist threat centered in Iraq, like if the if the U.S. was fighting a jihadist threat, Iraq would not be the place to start. Uh, if anything, the jihadist threat was generated uh, in Iraq by the U.S. invasion, not caused. Um, so I guess that is my response to your question from one Pakistani to I, another. I, I, I do see, though, that there is a larger point that I think you're bringing up is that had people, you know, elevate these threats, whether it was Islamic radicalism, whether it was threats to Israel or was whether it was threats to other things. And in fact, like if they held something up as a threat, things actually got worse. So I, I argue that actually the, the fall of Saddam hurt Israel's security because it empowered um, Iran and, and solidified their power in the region. Um, the Iraq war um, accelerated the growth of Islamic terrorism. Um, it did not lead to a growth of liberalism in the Middle East. It led to a growth of illiberalism. So these larger things that you saw people holding up as reasons to go in Iraq, like if they were citing it in four or five years, those things, those dynamics actually got worse and things went in the opposite direction. So I don't know if that was what you were getting at, at sir, but it still raises an, a, a point about a lot of the justifications used for the war. You know, all these things ultimately got worse. You know, it was funny, um, you had people recently, there was an article in, in um, uh, Jewish Insider Magazine where um, supposedly pro-Israel Republicans were criticizing uh, Governor DeSantis over his Ukraine position and say that causes him to worry about his stances on, on Israel. Almost every single one of these people, particularly Elliot Abrams, played a role in the Iraq war, which created a more unstable Middle East empowered Iran, which was not good for Israel's security. And also, too, they completely ignore the fact that Israel, in regards to Ukraine, has not done what a lot of the foreign policy elite here in D.C. want. So you, you just you see these really bad mental models around things. And you saw that most, I think, um, uh, you know, dramatically in the run up to the Iraq war and even after. Thanks very much. I think we're gonna gonna conclude. Thanks very much to um, to Justin, to to Essen, uh, Maitra, and to Dan, and to our to our audience, and to the Cato Institute for hosting this discussion today. In 15 minutes, we'll have Senator Kane. So, yes. So, uh, Senator Kane will be speaking. Yes. Shortly. Thank you. Back in 15. Thanks. <laughs>